Welcome to Economics Applied, a podcast series sponsored by the Hoover Institution. My name is Stephen Davis. I'm a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the host of the show. My guest today is Raj Chowdhury, a professor at Harvard Business School and a noted expert on work-related management practices. Welcome, Raj. It's great to see you and have you on the show. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for inviting me and thanks for those kind words. So, Raj, you've done some very insightful research on flexible working arrangements. And by that, I mean both where you work and what time you work and how you work and so on. And today, I want to tap your expertise to delve into three questions. First, how do flexible working arrangements effectivity? I know that's a multifaceted question. Second, which jobs and organizations are well-suited for flexible working arrangements and which are not? And third, what does it take to successfully manage a remote or partly remote workforce? So you game for those questions? Yes, sounds great. Okay, I figured you would be. Let's start with your study um, to productivity. When the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office let many of its patent examiners work remotely. And as I understand it, there were kind of two stages to this process. First, several hundred examiners were allowed over a period of time to work four days a week from home. And then some years later, a few hundred or so examiners were allowed to work from anywhere in the country and just occasionally come back to headquarters at their own expense. So there were two phases to this, and I want to hear about the productivity effects of both phases. But perhaps you could just start by sketching what, what a patent examiner does. What's the job? Yes, so I guess the patent examiner's job has been described to uh, me as both being the prosecutor and the judge. So <laughs> whenever there's an invention in front of the patent examiner in the form of a patent application, the job really is to... Uh, you know, decide whether or not to grant all the claims, uh, some part of those claims. And to do that, what the patent examiner is doing is comparing those claims to prior art, which is any published patent in the past, or even any published publication or book, and then checking for two things. Uh, they check for novelty, uh, and then they check for non-obviousness. Uh, it's a very solitary job. So it's uh, it's a very independent job. So uh, you know, uh, that's something that, you know, also should be taken into account for interpreting the results of our study. Uh, but it's it's done, it's fairly sophisticated, and a large number of the patent examiners uh, have advanced degrees. Some of them even have a PhD. Okay, so I take away two big things there. This is a, this is a high skill job. Correct. But there's not a lot of teamwork. You can do right. this pretty much on your own. Maybe eventually it's reviewed by a not a lot of teamwork, but high skill. So, that is cool. so this first experiment, or not experiment, I should say transition, which you interpreted as experiment, this first transition in working arrangements at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, that happened in 2006? Is that so right? The first, the first change happened around 2007. Seven. Uh, as, and as you said, what they uh, did in the transition is they allowed the patent examiners to work from home four days a week. Uh, but then you had to come to the office one day a week, which meant that you couldn't be living far away from the Alexandria, Virginia office. Okay. And, and who was eligible for this? I mean, all patent examiners, 
good performers? How did it work? No, it's a great question. So the 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 criteria was that, that you had to be uh, two years into the patent office to apply for this. Okay, so you, okay, so you were you were no longer a novice. That is correct. Okay, that's that that's probably important. In, in it is a very important uh, uh, yeah boundary condition. Yes. Yeah. And then one more thing, as I understand it, and this is really important for your research design, is the rollout of this was staggered. So it's not that everybody went, made this transition at the same time, but it was done at various points over time for various people. And the people were kind of, the timing was random. Is that right? So the 2007 study, not so much. Not so much. Uh, okay. least, yeah, the 2012 transition was, and so if I, if I may, what happened in 2012 was they went, as you said, to the next step. And they said, now you can live in any part of the U.S. Uh, if you've been on this uh, you know, four-day work-from-home program, now you are eligible to live in any part of the U.S. And you only have to come to the office a couple of times a year on your own dime. And that uh, uh, you know, treatment... Uh, it was done in a way because they have a and there's an interesting backstory, um, which your uh, you know listeners might appreciate. So there's a there's a union of patent examiners, which I didn't realize till I studied them. Uh, they're called POPA, and they're very powerful. And they were fearful that if they let people live far away from uh, Virginia, then the union will weaken. So they installed monthwise quotas for for 24 months, and then. Uh, selection into the quota was determined by a random by a lottery. Uh, so that is the the exogenous variation that we are able to uh, exploit for the second transition, the four okay. day work from home so, to from anywhere. So I am I correct from that 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 maybe your confidence in the results from the second stage are is greater than for the first stage because Absolutely. there could be other confounding things happening at the same time in the first stage. Absolutely. So, okay. so we don't make any causal claims for the first transition. We make more causal claims for okay, the second. So you're pretty cautious. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not it's not obvious that it's a problem in the in the first episode, but it could be. There could be something else yeah. happening at the same time, and we probably don't know. So just okay. So enough with the suspense. Tell us what happened, and you know, start with the 2007 transition to the hybrid work. And then move on to the other one. I want to know what did, what happened to productivity, and any other so, outcome measures you want to share. Yeah. So the way uh, we measured productivity, and that's also I think very special in the patent office. It is very objectively measurable. It's the number of case files the examiner examines in a fortnight, uh, and so that is. And we can also observe what kinds of case files they're examining, and that's going to be relevant uh, in trying to. Uh, you know, tease out the mechanism. So I'll talk about that in a, in, in a minute. Uh, so what we found in the first uh, treatment when they went from five days in the office to four days uh, working from home was uh, this measure of productivity. The number of case files per fortnight went up uh, to the tune of 9%. That's my recollection. And 9%. then the second uh, treatment, which is now you can live in any part of the US and you have to only come to the office twice a year, uh, it went up a further 4.4%. Okay, these are big effects. And, and you know, just to mention that, <laughs> uh, that I often stress is there's also time savings involved for the workers and that they are commuting. So in these numbers you're giving us, the 9% productivity boost in the first stage and the 4.5% in 
further boost in the second stage, that's not accounting for the the savings commute time. That's a that's a separate matter, but also uh, a potential benefit. Correct, Steve. And so also in the second stage, now that uh, the examiner can live anywhere, and they kept wages constant. So they did not say, if you move to a cheaper town, we're going to cut your wages. So what we observed was the other big benefit was the cost of living savings was about a standard deviation on average. Wow. Okay. So if you if you happen to be a patent examiner who wants to live in Montana, this is like a godsend for you. Yes. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, well, how do you explain? These are pretty remarkable numbers. Maybe they don't apply to all jobs. They certainly don't. But But how do you explain the productivity benefits that you found here? Yes. Yeah, so for the first stage, we did not uh, investigate the mechanisms, but I would say, you know, um, uh, you know, as we know, Nick's study, the C-TRIP study, and wow. you've done work as well, uh, looks at the mechanisms of transitioning from five days in the office to a hybrid plan and, and the mechanisms. I would sus suspect we're similar here. So it's the savings and commute time. Uh, it's it's the ability to, uh, you know, work uh, more flexibly on sick days and stuff like that. Uh, the second transition was what we were really, really focused on in our study. So for us, the baseline was four days a week in the office, and then we were investigating the effects of living where you wanted to live. And so, like I said, the, the first effect was that the cost of living went down, so real income went up. Uh, and then we also were able to observe what kinds of patent files were being examined more. And what we found very interestingly was they were the 4.4% productivity was primarily coming from examining uh, cases that needed more effort. And the way we measured that is we looked at how many first round uh, patent uh, pro uh, you know, uh, applications were being prosecuted. And the first round, like our journal first round, requires the most effort. Uh, so if the examiner is examining something for the seventh round, the effort, effort is marginal. But if you are reading an application for the first time, then, then you need a lot of more effort. So we, we saw that the effect was primarily driven by an increase in the first round prosecution. And then I, uh, I was perplexed why uh, examiners were exerting more effort. So I interviewed about, I want to say, 40 of them. And the story was unanimously one of employee loyalty. Uh, oh. So there was, there was, so I'll give you two examples, Steve. So one woman said, for the first time, because I'm living in a cheaper city, I'm able to afford daycare. That makes me more productive. And I really want to give it back to the patent office. Uh, there was a gentleman who moved to Philly from uh, living close to Alexandria. And he said, my daughter needs this cutting edge treatment in a hospital in Philly, which I couldn't have uh, brought her to this hospital every week if I was living in close to D DC, and that just makes me much more of a loyal employee. Uh, so the, the effect was, at least in my interviews, my field interviews, and we, we can't, of course, we didn't do a survey of loyalty, but the, 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 the field research uh, revealed that there was a lot of um, you know, loyalty uh, that was expressed towards the patent office. Okay, so is it, is it, can you distinguish between loyalty and they're just in their work lives and so they're more productive? It sounds, you're telling a loyalty story or kind of a, the patent office did something nice for me, so now I'm going to really work extra hard. 
that that does sound like a loyalty gift exchange story. Yes, but it's it's you can you're confident that's really what the story is, and not just I'm just happier, my life is better, so I can work more productively. So you know, because we were looking, so it's a great question. But you know, since we were doing the study in 2018, and the transition had happened in 2012, we couldn't do a retrospective uh, survey which was contemporaneous. I would have loved to do that if this was a live experiment. So we couldn't measure the employee satisfaction before and after. And that's why all we could rely on was these interviews. Okay, okay. So let, let, me, let me move on to, we kind of talked about the first question that I posed at the outset, which is how arrangements affect productivity, at least in this context. Um, but let's move on to the, the second question I posed, which is, can you give us some insights based on this research, but you have a whole portfolio of research in this area. So insights into which jobs and organizations are well-suited for flexible working arrangements and which are not. And beyond the obvious, you know, the barista has to be there in person, so it doesn't really lend itself to work from home. What are some less obvious lessons from your work about what kinds of jobs and organizations are well-suited for flexible working arrangements? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, before that, Steve, can I just say one quick thing around the work from anywhere thing, which also I think might be relevant for, for uh, your listeners. So, so our uh, study, and by the way, you know, just a, small, a short anecdote, the reason the patent office shared this data with us, you know, because they had to share the zip codes of where people moved to, uh, was they had to report back to Congress, whether at that point in time, 2018, whether to make this permanent. So they wanted some external academic to evaluate the productivity. Uh, and, and so they gave us the data. But, you know, the while doing the study, the other thing that came up, which we did not, um, uh, you know, look at very carefully, and you know, uh, but I would love to at some point, uh, was how the patent office was now able to hire from a greater number of colleges nationally. Uh, so, because they were letting people, you know, after the first two years to go and live in the South in California, they were able to now hire from colleges in California and other states. That they had never been able to do, do uh, in the past. So, I, I, you know, in terms of what the benefits to the organization is, I would argue, and you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, we should study that uh, uh, as as a community that you know, work from anywhere potentially lets the organization tap into more distant labor markets. Uh, yeah, I so think I, that's a great that's a great point. Thanks for sharing that with us, and it's it's extremely relevant to the thousands or millions of companies that have suddenly move to a more remote workforce in the wake of the pandemic and are now able to uh, recruit um, more broadly in a geographic sense. Uh, yes. Yeah, so if you write that study, uh, we'll have you back on the show and you can tell us about it. Well, um, thank you. So let, let's go on to get, give us your, your lessons and insights. You, you're teaching your HBS students. You know, what do you tell them about when, when in terms of jobs and organizational culture? Uh, remote work or flexible working arrangements might be well suited, and when might they not be? Right. So, so I guess you know uh, the, the the short answer, and I'll, I'll, I'll expand on it. Is it depends, and this relates to your third question. Uh, you know, which jobs you can do, uh, you know, you can grant flexibility, and what kind of organizations depends on the quality of management practices that supports flexible work. So I'll tell you how my priors have shifted on this. 
So when I did the patent office, you know, in the paper, we write extensively that, you know, this is an independent job, there's less teamwork. So, you know, the boundary conditions uh, for making this successful are if, if the task is more independent. But then after writing that paper, I started studying GitLab. Uh, and GitLab at that point in time was an organization of about a thousand people. I believe they've grown twice now around. And they were completely remote. They had no offices. Uh, and so their C-suite, their sales team, their marketing team, their R&D team, their product team, all of the teams were working from anywhere, uh, from multiple countries. Uh, and then I stumbled upon Zapier, which I'm studying and I presented at the last Remote Work Conference in Stanford. And Zapier is about 169 employees across 18 countries. So, and then I, uh, you know, as I went deeper into these smaller startups, which are being organized in that fashion, I realized they were doing things differently. So this relates to the, the set of management practices that are needed to support flexible work. So I think if, um, you know, if, he, if, a, if a company manager was listening to this conversation, the short answer would be, if you don't want to change uh, your management practices, then probably flexible work is suited for independent tasks. And if you want to go all in, then you need to reimagine some of the management practices. Yeah. You know, I had a conversation a while back with a private equity executive whose firm has taken many companies, bought them, and turned them into, in, into fully remote organizations. And he said something to me that I hadn't thought about before, but struck me as perfectly sensible. If you want to go to a fully or largely remote working arrangements with your employees, a lot of the work, more of the work will take place asynchronously. And so the, the, the nature of the communications and the type of communications that are required for effective management and teamwork become very different. And he said, in our organization, we've learned that it's essential to have good writing skills, both the managers and the coworkers, meaning that they can write clearly and succinctly. Nobody wants to read a 500-page memo, so it's got to be succinct, but it's also got to be clear. And that's very different than when you can talk to somebody face-to-face, -face, uh, even on Zoom, and tell a little bit from their body language whether they're understanding, whether you need to elaborate. So I thought that was a rather uh, interesting observation about how the entire nature of the way communication happens needs to needs to be adapted to the working arrangements. You're Is that an example of the kind of thing you have in mind? I, yes, so I'll give you a few examples. No, you're absolutely right. So on that theme, you know, it's how you coordinate, how you uh, communicate, how you mentor workers, how you onboard. All of these processes, all of these management practices need to be slightly different. Um, so I'll give you a few examples. So, uh, you know, one common theme which seems to be cutting across all these, as we now call them, all remote organize, uh, organizations, is that they are very focused on what I would call knowledge codification. So GitLab, to give an example, has something called the GitLab Handbook. And the, the principle there is any question that begins with a how, like how do we set salaries here? How do we hire? How do we apply for budget? There's an answer there. And if there's not an answer, it's the job of someone to, to add that answer. Uh, and so, you know, if I was a new employee joining GitLab today, I don't have the ability to tap, tap a shoulder 
but I can go to the handbook and read uh, about the management practice. Uh, the second thing they do is, as you said, Steve, they, they focus a lot on asynchronous communication. So they don't do calls or meetings for everything. A lot of the communication is on Slack and they have their rituals where they only use, uh, you know, uh, you know, synchronous calls to take decisions while a lot of the brainstorming happens asynchronously. Uh, the third thing that, you know, we studied with a very large organization, uh, organization was the idea of virtual water coolers. When you have randomized uh, Zoom calls between really senior people and folks who have just joined. Uh, and the purpose of those calls are not to do any work or talk about any work-related issues, but so that the juniors receive some mentorship. And I can go on and on and on. So there, there are these common theme, you know, almost common suite of management practices that seem to distinguish these all remote companies. You know, what listening to you, Raj, what strikes me is how much discipline is required to actually follow through on some of what you've described. Like every question has a codified answer. I mean, somebody's got to take the time to write that answer clearly, make sure it actually does reflect company practice, and it's got to be done over and over again. So there's sort of a big fixed cost and some discipline required to implement this. Once you've got this handbook, if it's well-organized, that's great. But I can imagine trying to get my academic colleagues to follow through on something like this, and I... Uh, uh, shudder at the thought. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a great point, Steve. And the way they've described uh, this to me is that, you know, it's a trade-off that the employee uh, has to take a decision about. And I'm, I'm guessing there'll be a lot of self-selection of folks deciding to work for all remote companies or not. But the trade-off they, they describe in the following, uh, you know, uh, way, they say, if you want to have the flexibility of working remotely, of living in a cheaper location, of living close to friends and family, then uh, what you have to give back to the company is to is an uh, you know an openness to embrace these these ways of coordinating and communicating that we require. And and they've said it's not about just talking and listening; it's a lot about reading and writing. So I think that is that is essentially uh, told to the new hires when they're interviewed. I see. That's a great that's a great way to do it because. Um... You put people on notice about their expectations, about the expectations of them, but you also explain why. Yes. It's in the organization's interest and ultimately their interest to participate in this process. Absolutely. And I think what's happened because of this, so, you know, there's no counterfactual to this, but, you know, if I had to imagine a Zapier 10 years back, uh, then they would be probably located in Silicon Valley. They would probably be competing against the Googles of the world to get their 169 employees. And now instead, they can hire from 18 countries. Uh, and so for the startup founders, it's also a really different way of accessing talent. So let's shift from the new companies forming their company culture and their practices, de novo, to existing successful companies. Whereas you know, there's a lot of resistance uh, to work, to remote work. And the resistance in my, I don't have hard evidence for this, but my impressionistic evidence is the resistance rate rises as you move up the corporate hierarchy. And there's perhaps a couple of reasons for that. And I want to get your reaction to it. One is people who are well up in the corporate hierarchy have been 
well served and have thrived under traditional management structures that didn't involve much role for remote work. Second, people at senior level levels of organizations tend to be older and set in their ways. Uh, let's exclude my present company from that uh, <laughs> for the sake of kindness. But do you see this resistance, especially in management ranks, to successful corporate enterprises to remote work? And first, do you see that? Then we can get into why it's there and whether you no, so I, I think, you know, I, I, I agree with your priors, but, you know, what I would add to why, you know, even large successful companies and these, uh, you know, older, uh, more experienced CEOs and CXOs need to adapt is I would say uh, it's, it's purely a talent issue because, you know, uh, my logic has been, and I would love to, once again, uh, you know, this is high up on my agenda to study. Uh, my 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 prior has been that in any economic cycle, the right tail of the talent distribution has outside options, and uh, uh, you know, uh, extending flexible work arrangements uh, is a way to attract diverse talent. And if if part of the the uh, right tail starts drifting away to competitors, then you know, as a CEO, you will have no other option but to adapt. Uh, so why not be ahead of the game? And be that company in whatever industry you are in, attracting talent rather than bleeding talent. So that's been my logic. But you know, of course, I understand that it's hard to change, and it's it's a it's it's a change in management practices more than technology. So I'm sympathetic to that light of argument, but let me let me try to play devil's advocate. I have a I I have a corporate culture, which through generations has been successful at identifying talent, cultivating that talent. Some of it moves up in the organization. Some of it goes elsewhere. Um, we're good at that. Let's say, I think I, I think our organization is really good at that. And you're telling me now that I should jettison that and try a different technique just because I might lose one or two people at the top end. And I'm saying, well, you know, maybe I will lose a few people. I'll keep is my distinctive corporate culture uh, that took a long time to create. Uh, that has been successful through thick and thin, and I don't want to give that up. So what's your response to that? So, so uh, you know, two or three things. The first thing is that by, you know, sticking, uh, you know, by holding on to the old, uh, first of all, you're precluding the, the ability to hire from more distant labor markets. Uh, and so I think that should be in the calculus. The second is you might be able to hold on to this old way of of hiring and building culture or whatnot for a while. But the other thing you have to think about is the millennials and the generations following them are probably going to demand way more and more flexibility. So how long will the company be able to withstand uh, the, the, the sort of like uh, demand for flexibility that workers will have? And the final thing I would say is that, you know, it doesn't have to be in one big uh, top-down uh, change. Uh, so the, I, I feel, honestly, probably the best way to, to move to the future is through a series of within-firm experiments. Uh, so, you, you know, I think if, if I was a CEO, I would say uh, different teams, go and experiment uh, with your flexible work regimes, report back what's working, what, what's scalable in this context, and then teams learn from each other. And then, you know, you build a plane as you're trying to fly it. 
but I feel these top-down mandates are extremely rigid. Uh, it leads to all kinds of resistance, as we've seen, uh, and it just creates bad PR for, for hiring. Yeah, so I'm going to summarize part of what you said and then add something. So you, you see, and correct me if I've got it wrong, the costs, both implicit and explicit, of sticking in a rigid way to, let's say, traditional management practices as getting higher and higher over time. So companies are going to face increasing pressures to adapt. That's one thing I hear you say. Yes. The second thing is the nature of that adaptation is perhaps and maybe probably different in different organizations. So you should be experimenting to figure out what works well in your organization. What's the best way to adapt to the new labor market that you are confronted with, opportunities that you are presented with by the opportunities to um, recruit uh, and retain people more broadly. Is that right? I, I totally agree, Steve. And I, I feel it has to be a combination of top-down policy, but also bottom-up experimentation. So that so that, that that's maybe that's maybe that's exactly right. I think the the thing here was where I was trying to add something is it's it's not entirely clear to me that where we're going to end up in we may end up in a world where most companies um, in 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 sectors where it's feasible to work remotely. You know, going back to the point I made earlier, in most sectors where it's feasible to work remotely, that's kind of the way most organizations go. But there may be some organizations that say, look, we have a distinctive culture that works with in-person activity. There's a set of people. We know it's not for everybody, but there's a set of people out there who want to be in the office four or five days a week, most weeks out of the year. And we're going to cater to those people. So it's just like you go to your, you know, you go to your supermarket and there's 32 different flavors of, of varieties of yogurt. I probably understated it. Um, so one of the great things about markets is they're they're good at accommodating heterogeneity and differences in in demand and supply characteristics on the two sides of the market. Maybe that's out here. Maybe the maybe uh, Goldman Sachs, Tesla, uh, maybe they'll succeed with a model in which they expect um, workers to be in the office most of the time. It just won't be the dominant model anymore the way it was in the past. Yeah, and I'll just add one thing, Steve. So I would say, uh, you know, so absolutely. So, I, you know, we should expect a lot of variation, uh, you know, between firms in the same industry. But I would say there's also an opportunity to, to allow variation in, in internal labor markets. And the one way to do that would be to take, to treat the team as the unit of analysis instead of the individual or the organization. So what if, like, you know, I'll just state one way this might happen. What if the, the top-down policy is that 25% or just, you know, to take a number of the workdays have to be in person, but individual teams uh, could differ in how they structure the 25. So some teams could come in one day every week. Some teams could say, hey, we live in Connecticut. We can't drive to New York every week. So we'll do one entire week every month. That's 25%. Some other teams could say, you know, we have someone who lives in California, so we'll do 10 days every two months. That's still 25%. And then if that experimentation is run bottom up, then over time, the management will collect data on what's working and not what's not working. So, 
you know, my only sort of uh, sort of uh, thing to add here is I just don't feel that top down one policy fits all individuals and all teams uh, thing is the most creative way to think about this transition. And maybe there's, yeah. you know, we could allow more variation inside the company as well. Right. Yeah. So allow for experimentation, but then also collect data <laughs> in some Absolutely. way, shape or form so you can evaluate uh the performance of these different approaches within the organization uh, and get some sense of what works when and why and when. Yep. So, Raj, anything, any other last pearls of wisdom you want to share with us related to uh, remote work? Yeah, so I, I guess the only other thing, so a couple of things uh, just to add, uh, Steve. So, you know, what I'm I'm thinking about and studying. So I guess one thing that is the way I got into remote work, so my uh, you know, my early work and, you know, I still work on uh, migration a lot. And so one of the reasons I found uh, work from anywhere, that particular form of remote work exciting was it allows for reverse brain drain, uh, especially to smaller towns in the country and across the world, which have lost a lot of talent over the decades. So one community that I've been studying for a while now, even before the pandemic, uh, is Tulsa in Oklahoma. And they have attracted about 2,000 remote workers and their families uh, since the program started. And we found all kinds of positive effects for the town and the community. Uh, so we found that these folks are, are adding volunteering hours in the local community. Uh, we just did an RCT of, of, of uh, combining these new migrants with locals, and we had them write business plans. So, you know, uh, next year we'll have a working paper around that. So... So I just feel that, you know, work from anywhere has uh, a real potential to, to facilitate reverse brain drain and the spatial distribution of talent. And the other thing that, you know, I'm super excited about is to your first point, um, you know, how remote work and flexible work is not possible in many sectors such as manufacturing or operations. I think that's slowly changing as well. And one of the things I'm super excited about is this uh, digitization of work. Uh, or what they call digital twins. So using sensors and automation and machine learning, you can create a virtual replica of a factory, of a warehouse, of a hospital, of an airport. And then part of the uh, uh, you know work, which was earlier done in person, in the hospital, in the airport, now can be done from far away. Uh, so many companies, Unilever has done as pilots on this, BMW has done pilots. So I expect the boundaries of flexible work to start permeating in these sectors as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So we're we're um, we're due for more uh, changes in the nature of work. Maybe not quite as rapidly as the ones that were instigated by the pandemic, but uh, no less profound uh, over time. Um, I also I also like very much and agree with your point about reverse brain drain and. You know, in the United States, but in other parts of the world as well, there's been um, a long-term trend uh, of con increasing concentration of talent and generating capacity in major urban areas. That's that's a source of disparities in society at best, and various forms of civil strife. And we've uh, we've kind of worried about that for a long time. Here's a fundamental economic development that's actually pushing very sharply in the other direction. 
That is correct. Uh, and there'll be some distance associated with that. You can see that by walking around the downtown business core areas of some major urban cities, uh, urban areas in the United States. But there's also these benefits. That, uh, and you, you gave the example of Tulsa. That's just one. But that's playing out. Versions of this are playing out in many parts of the uh, country and, and, and elsewhere around the world. And ultimately, I think that's quite a positive development. Uh, thanks so much, Raj. Thank uh, you. This was great. And thanks to everybody for listening. Bye-bye for now, everybody. Bye.